And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And Father, we humbly ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to prepare us and to give us a heart that would be willing and even, Lord, interested to hear what the voice of God would want to say to us this morning through the word of God in this portion of scripture. Lord, may every intent behind the reason you wrote it be what we hear and receive and speak to us in a personal way directly what you want us to hear. Minister to us by your spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you ever pause before, maybe just to consider for a moment that despite how incredibly awesome, how incredibly awesome God really is, that he actually made himself very accessible to all of us. When you look up the word accessible in the dictionary, it's defined in this way. Capable of being reached, seen, and understood, easy to speak and to interact with. God, how great and awesome he is, yet made himself extremely accessible to us all, able to be reached, to be seen for who he is, to be understood. He's made it actually quite simple for us to speak and interact with him in and through Jesus. God, because of his great love for us, has actually made himself accessible. And our text this morning is indicating that reality to us, how God came and was among us on this earth. That God himself was actually among us on this planet. Almighty God, listen, did not stand afar off, aloof and distant and detached from his creation, but instead actually took initiative and humbly came to us in the most personal way that could actually be possible. That's what our passage is telling us this morning. The background from the first 13 verses we saw last time is John was seeking to emphasize in this opening part of his book that Jesus was and Jesus is God. He spoke about how Jesus himself has always pre-existed prior to his time on earth as a man, that he was the pre-existent eternal God who had always been there in the heavens forever and ever, even before anything was ever created or made, the second person among the Godhead or the Trinity, the very Son of God himself, who is the creator, as John said as well, of all things. He's the giver of life, not just physical life, bios, but zoe, spiritual life, eternal life. That he being God, possessing eternal life as the eternal God, is the only one who can give eternal life, can give spiritual life, and he as well gives light to all men. He enlightens us and illuminates us to the understanding of what it means to know God and have a relationship with him. And John then summarized his final statements by saying, therefore, he said, eternal life and relationship with God hinges upon one simple thing, either receiving Jesus or not receiving Jesus. Rejecting Jesus 
or being responsive and receptive to Jesus. That is the determining factor for all that's eternal and all that is in regards to relationship with God. Well, after proving that Jesus is God, John now moves on here in our 14th verse to describe what Jesus himself did. Look what he says, verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here, verse 14, and we're going to camp here, don't get paranoid, for a little bit longer than we do the other verses because the incredible doctrinal statement that is being made here in this verse, verse 14 of chapter 1 here, is probably one of the clearest declarations we have in our Bible of how God himself in the person of Jesus became a man and actually dwelt and resided among humanity here on this earth. We read there the word, which we now know is a title for Jesus Christ, the eternal God, became flesh, the idea is became man. This is what we call many times the incarnation or the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And again, if you're looking for a, a definition theologically of what that means, you probably could be best explained in this way. This is how I jotted it down. It refers to how God, in order to reveal himself most clearly, as well as to save and redeem humanity from sin, actually miraculously became a man actually miraculously became a person taking on flesh. So again, how God himself purposely in order to reveal himself most clearly to his humanity that he created and loves and in an effort to sort of save and redeem man in the most perfect way possible took flesh upon himself, became a human being, being fully God and fully man, as we'll talk about. The eternal God, remaining who he was, eternal God, actually, in this miraculous way, simultaneously became fully human in the same person. God who dwelt and lived among mankind in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the incarnation is. This great marvel of the mysteries of God, 1 Timothy 3 even says this, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifested in the flesh. Now listen, let's be very honest. That whole reality, and it is a reality, it surpasses human logic and reasoning. That our little finite mind could somehow wrap you know, it together and come to a full understanding of this marvelous mystery. The Bible says it is a mystery. This incredible mystery that God became man, that God was manifested in the flesh, that he supernaturally, never ceasing to be God, that he supernaturally became a man simultaneously at the same time in the exact same person. The second person of the Trinity in Godhead, Jesus, it says here, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, look at the text there. When it says became flesh, be careful. That does not speak of Jesus just putting on skin, but it refers to the term became flesh. It refers to taking on the totality of everything that is human nature, body and soul, including everything it means to be a human being. It does not mean that Jesus just, if you would clothe himself with skin like a hide for a time, the idea being how we may, let's say, for example, put on a jacket and then later take the jacket off. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus took upon himself everything that it means to be human. Jesus, without ever ceasing to be God, 
fully became man, listen, by adding another nature to his person. Deity took upon himself humanity so that he could be fully divine and fully human simultaneously at the exact same time. Jesus did not just become like a man. Jesus became a man. He became a man. He became fully human. He added humanity to his existing deity. And that happened through what we refer to as the miraculous conception and the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us that God allowed the life of his son Jesus Christ in the personhood of a part of the Trinity to be miraculously conceived by a miracle of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit to be miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin woman. Miracle of miracles. That God took the life of his son and through a miracle of the Spirit, not natural human relations as we were all created by, but by a miracle of God, the Spirit put the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, into the womb of a virgin woman. And then that virgin woman gave birth naturally to Jesus that he might be born as a human, that he may be born as a man. Galatians tells it this way. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, that is the proper time for salvation to come, the prophecies to be fulfilled, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. In other words, Jesus, the pre-existent God, there at the throne of God at a certain time, was sent forth from heaven and put into the womb of a virgin woman that he might be conceived in a way so that he could be fully divine and fully human at the exact same time. One person, yet two natures, simultaneously being God and man, becoming and being forever God and man, or what we might better say, the God-man. Forever. Being fully God and fully man, Jesus will be. That means that Jesus, understand, experienced in his life everything that it meant to be human. Jesus was subject to weakness and to weariness. Jesus experienced hunger and thirst. He experienced what it felt like to be cold. He experienced all the human experiences that we do and he was subjected to everything that humanity is because he was fully human, which means he was subject to emotions like we have. He was subject to stress. He was subject to rejection and loneliness. He was subject to physical pain. We need to remember that. The same nerve endings that you have or the same nerve endings that Jesus had as he was brutally beaten and suffered for our sins as he died for us upon the cross. Jesus was even subject to physical death, which he went through and then rose back from the dead in his resurrection. And the Bible says that he also was in all points tempted as we are with sin, but yet without sin. He never succumbed to temptation like we all do and fail as human beings. Jesus was the one sinless man, the perfect man. And listen, the incarnation and that Jesus would do that, please hear me, was essential to our salvation. If you don't believe in the incarnation, then you don't believe in the true Christ. Because if Jesus did not come in the way that he did, being fully God and also becoming fully man salvation would not be possible for mankind. It truly wouldn't. It was essential that Jesus do what he did. This is the great mystery and marvel of God's plan of salvation. 
that God came up with this incredible way being a holy, righteous God and yet fallen, sinful humanity, God came up with a way to reconcile the two, being fully righteous and just and yet being completely loving and merciful and gracious at the same time. And that way was through his son Jesus possessing divinity and humanity being able to resolve the problem relationally that existed between holy God and fallen sinful human beings. Jesus coming, being who he was and doing what he did was the only resolution for that to reconcile God and man. Now the Bible says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a man as the ransom or sufficient payment to be released for all people. So Jesus' sinless, holy blood and life was the sufficient payment for holy God's wrath against our sin to be satisfied in a man. And therefore, as he died as our substitute, taking as well the punishment for the sin of humanity upon himself as the innocent one, in so doing, Jesus was able, being in touch with divinity and humanity, to reconcile and build the bridge perfectly. So now, therefore, through Jesus, God himself and sinful man have the opportunity to be reunited and reconciled if we come to God through Jesus, through the perfect mediator, the one mediator between God and men. So Jesus, here we read, became flesh. And then John adds in the 14th verse here that he not only became flesh, but then for a time he dwelt, it says, verse 14, among us now very interesting john could have wrote and he lived among us but john purposely wrote and he dwelt among us because the word he used there dwelt among us literally from the old language is where we get our term tabernacle it literally says that jesus came became flesh and he tabernacled among us purposeful because that term there is a reference to the tent or tabernacle God instructed Israel to set up as they journeyed through the wilderness for a season of time. Remember, that tent or tabernacle, God temporarily there manifested his presence to his people. Outwardly, if you remember, we've been studying it on Wednesday nights, you've been with us. Outwardly, the tabernacle, this tent, was a rather ordinary structure in its framework and it had skin coverings. I mean, it wasn't this crystal cathedral. It was a tent. It was just an ordinary tent outwardly, but yet inside that ordinary common tent was all of the glory and the power and the presence and the Shekinah glory of God Almighty as God manifested his presence among his people in that way at that time. And what's amazing is that tent, remember, was the place where God was dwelling among his people, that the presence of God was with his people. It was in that tent where Moses would go, remember, and where God would speak to him face to face. It says like a man speaks to his friend. It was in that tent that sin was atoned for at the Holy of Holies. Now, keep that in mind as John uses a word picture and John says here now regarding Jesus, God, he says, dwelt among us. God, he says, God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. God's presence, John's saying, was with humanity dwelling among us once again. He's saying, but in a much more personal way than ever ever before now he says god was tabernacling among us by coming in the tent 
of a human body. In the person of his son, Jesus, God literally took the tent of a human body and dwelt among us again temporarily for a time on this earth. And his presence was among us. And I want you to think of the correlation. Jesus' body, his tent, if you would, humanly, it was just like a common, normal human body, like every other person. You know, a lot of Christian artwork has really misconstrued this. You see Jesus and he has this luminescent glow. You know, it's like a switch. You could turn him off and on. He was a man. He was a Jewish man. He was a common man. Isaiah's prophecy says there was nothing special about him that would draw us to him more than anyone else. Remember Judas, when he came into a crowd, he had to identify to the religious leaders who Jesus was. Why? Because he probably looked like most other common Jewish people in his day. Outwardly, his tent physically, he was a common man just like you and I in every way to relate to us, but yet inwardly was all the deity and divinity of being God himself. He was God, eternal, in human flesh, dwelling just like that tabernacle and Jesus was dwelling among us as God in a body for a time. And in the same way with the tabernacle, it was through Jesus by being face to face with Jesus that you could hear God speak to you. Because as Peter and John and James talked to Jesus, just like Moses, God was talking to them face to face. He was speaking to them. And just like that tabernacle, inside of that tabernacle was where sin was atoned for and it was in the tent and the body of Jesus where once for all sin was atoned for and done away with, the Bible tells us through the flesh and the body of Jesus. Colossians 1 says it this way, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that's Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Listen, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. Again, Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 talk about this very thoroughly, the reality of how it was the body of Jesus and it was through his body, that earthly tent, that God brought reconciliation, that he appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin once for all. That's why now there can be one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, that we don't need to go to God through a priest. We don't need to go to God through a pastor. We don't need to go to God through another person. We don't need to go to God through any special ritual or any routine. We can go to God directly through the person of Jesus Christ by our faith in him and understanding who he is because of what he did in his death for us upon the cross and resurrection. So in Jesus, God himself marvel of all marvels was actually living among us on this earth until the time he accomplished what he came for and then ascended back in heaven that's why in Matthew chapter 1 when the birth announcements being given by the angel to Joseph Joseph remember is told to name Jesus he says call him Emmanuel which translated means God with us he was reminding Joseph because when you have Jesus, and you see Jesus, he says, that will be God with us, among us, living among us in the most personal way on this earth. And John says here, going on, verse 14, and we beheld 
his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. The word beheld, there's a term that means to look upon, to watch something in order to gain a better understanding. And what John is trying to say here is he's reflecting upon how he and Peter and James and John and all the other people in the days of Israel as they looked upon Jesus as they gazed upon him and beheld him and interacted with him over many years, John says, we were seeing a demonstration by God before our eyes to help us to come into a greater understanding of the glory of God that was a work among us. That God was doing this glorious thing by dwelling in our midst. Now when he says we beheld his glory, he's not talking about the absolute glory of the eternal dimension from which Christ came. That would be too powerful for anyone to look upon with a natural eye, the Bible says. But he's talking about the glory of God being concealed in the personage of Jesus. That when they looked upon Jesus and they beheld him, it helped them come to a greater understanding that Jesus' life was the revelation of all of God's divine glory being shown in the easiest way possible for people to understand. And so often the glory of God was shining through Jesus' life. When he would do his signs and his miracles, they would behold the glory of God through his life. In his words at times, the glory of God was being demonstrated from his life as Jesus remember in the transfiguration what was radiating the glory of his deity from his life Peter James and John they saw a measure of the glory of God in the person of Jesus in his death and his resurrection and his ascension they were seeing the glory of God being revealed to them so this beautiful thing Jesus making the glory of God visible showing it to mankind and John then says finally there in the 14th verse regarding the word or Jesus about his person John says and he Jesus was full of grace and truth full of grace and truth Jesus's person was the complete fulfillment listen of everything that grace is and everything that truth is Perfectly mingled together. Jesus embodied what grace and truth are perfectly. The reason is Colossians tells us that all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus bodily. All the fullness of God was dwelling in Jesus bodily. As a result, he brought the final, you could say, full revelation of what grace and truth really are. When we consider the life of Jesus, we will in the Gospel of John and in the writings of the Gospels, Jesus' life, it's so evident, Jesus' life emanated the grace of God. And what's grace? Grace is basically God's undeserved, unmerited kindness, his undeserved favor, his unmerited blessing that he gives freely. And Jesus was incredibly gracious in all of his dealings when you read the accounts of his life. Jesus was incredibly gracious in his words that he would speak to people, truthful but yet so gracious at the same time as well. Jesus was incredibly gracious with sinners and failures and Jesus showed grace in the treatment of all of his ways, treating people with dignity and love and compassion and Jesus was the embodiment of grace and Jesus as well was the embodiment of truth regarding everything that's moral and spiritual and eternal. We're going to see in the 14th chapter where Jesus declares with his own words, I am the truth. Please pay attention. He doesn't say I am a truth. If your attitude towards Jesus, yeah, he's, I mean, he's part of the truth. I'm looking for the truth. He's probably part of the truth. Wrong. Jesus is the truth. Absolute truth. It's not politically correct, but it's biblically accurate. 
He's the truth. He is the exclusive truth about everything that is right and accurate and authentic of what is moral and spiritual and eternal. He is the embodiment of truth because he was the embodiment of God and therefore everything Jesus did was in line with God's truth. It was always righteous and true and everything Jesus spoke was true. It was the truth. Listen, there may be some of you here this morning, you've lived a life of listening to people's lies. You've been disappointed by people's lies. Listen, I'll tell you, there's one person whose words you can trust. It may not always be your friends. It may not always be your spouse. It may not always be your parents. It may not always be your teachers. It certainly ain't going to be your college professors. I guarantee you that. But the words of Jesus are what's true. Those are words that are accurate and reliable because Jesus was the embodiment of in all of his grace of everything that is true because he was the truth himself. Look, verse 15, John goes on saying, John, referring to John the Baptist, not himself, bore witness of Jesus and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. So this gives us another little glimpse here into the insight of the ministry of John the Baptist and the, the chapter ahead of us the remainder of the chapter. We're going to talk a lot more in the next section about John the Baptist as it really then starts to begin his ministry and to describe what he did. As we know of John the Baptist, basically, as we've seen, he was a man who was sent by God before the ministry of Jesus began as a forerunner to prepare people for the coming of Jesus, to get people ready spiritually to recognize Jesus, to receive Jesus by putting their trust in him. And we read here, verse 15, John just gives this little parenthetical insertion here of one of the declarations John the Baptist made about Jesus. We read that he said of Jesus, John did, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. So notice this with me. John admits that Jesus came after him. John the Baptist. He declared Jesus came after me. Now, from a human chronological perspective, that's true. Jesus was actually about six months younger than John the Baptist, humanly. And John the Baptist's ministry did indeed start and was happening before Jesus' ministry ever began and public ministry got started. So technically, from an earthly chronological perspective, Jesus came after John the Baptist from a human standpoint as a man on earth. Yet nonetheless, look what John says, but yet though he came after me, he's preferred before me. The language there simply means he's of higher rank than me. He's more superior. He's far greater than I am. What's the reason? John tells us. Because he who came after me, why is he far greater? John says, because actually, he who came after me was before me. He came after me, but he actually was before me. One translation renders that this way. Someone who's coming, who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before I ever did. What John is there testifying to is the reason he's saying Jesus is so much greater than me, is he says, because Jesus was the pre-existent eternal God. And before he ever came to this planet, he existed far before I ever did. In fact, John is acknowledging the reality, knowing that he was the son of God, that Jesus existed far before he ever did. And Jesus was the one as the creator of God who even gave John his life and his breath in his lungs and his ability to minister and to have the privilege to be someone who would point people to say, behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And so because of that, John says, he is far greater than me. He's far superior to me. Later, we're going to see John say in his ministry, this incredible declaration. He's going to say this about Jesus. John's going to say, he must increase, I must decrease. Later, John is going to say that about himself and Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. And I can't help but to say, what a great life goal. That's a great testimony by John to realize that that and really is the essence of what Christian maturity is about. Realizing all of who I am in my natural person, that needs to continue to decrease. All of who I am and who I represent, that's what needs to die in my life. Listen, let me give you helpful advice. The world does not need more of you. The way we live and act sometimes, we want to be center stage and we think the world needs more of us, needs a little bit more of me. No, the world needs less of you. My family needs less of me. My, my wife needs less of me. This church needs less of me. This world needs more of Jesus in us. So the essence of Christian maturity really, quite honestly, could be defined of as less of me and more of Christ. More of Christ in me as a Christian because the spirit of the eternal living Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, lives inside of you. Christ indwelling and enthroned, a book I read a long time ago, the title of it is all I really remember. That's all that matters. Christ indwelling and enthroned. That's the essence of the pursuit of the Christian life that I would die more and that Jesus' life would be manifested in me more. That's what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he said, we who always live are being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Christ might be manifested in our mortal body. That as we live like Paul the Apostle, we would seek to say, Lord, may there be less of me today and may there be more of you today ruling in me. May you be the one speaking in my life. Lord, help me not to say all the dumb things I say. Would you use my mouth and say what you want to say? You live in me, Lord. Say what you want to say through me. Lord, live out your life. Help me to see what you're seeing, to look at things the way that you're looking at things, to, to go where you want me to go and to let the life of Jesus be increasing in us more of Jesus in greater measures. Now, returning back to this idea and statement, how Jesus was full of grace and truth, John then goes on in the 16th verse declaring this. And of his fullness, that fullness of Jesus, he says, we've all received and grace for grace. The term John uses there for fullness, plermo, which is basically a term that speaks of being filled up to capacity or overflowing. And what John is trying to drive home here regarding the person of Jesus is how from Jesus there comes an overflowing fountain of continuous, unending blessing because of who he is. From Jesus, now as the result of his life and his death and his resurrection on earth, grace is freely available to all of mankind. Grace beyond comprehension. Grace is available. The opportunity to receive grace from God for our failures and our sins and our shortcomings. Listen, this morning, I don't know where you all stand spiritually, but I tell you this, if you're not saved yet, you're not in a relationship with God yet, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how deep the stain of sin and failure is in your life and the regrets that you know and you hold inside yourself that you would never tell another human being. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more and it abounds through Jesus. 
Because of what Jesus has done, God supplies the grace that is needed to be saved. The Bible says it this way anyway, that we're saved by grace, through faith, by believing it. And it says it's a gift of God. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works. You don't have to earn God's forgiveness. You don't have to try and weigh back out the scales by doing enough good things to make your own conscience feel better about the bad and wrong things that you know you've done. Listen, you don't deserve it. No one deserves it. The one thing we all have in common in this room this morning, which is not good looks, is raw failures. We've all sinned. We've all made our share of mistakes and things we've thought and ways we've spoken and how we've acted or things we've done. We all fail. And that's why Jesus finished the perfect work of forgiveness and salvation for us so that freely we can be saved by receiving as a gift. Ephesians 1 says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound towards us. You know, from Jesus, there is this continuous flow, this constant river of God's grace that we can drink deeply from. Jesus said this in Revelation 21 and 22, I give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's found in Jesus. There's a river of grace that's flowing from his life. And if you are thirsty this morning, all you need to do is come to Jesus and admit your need for his grace in your life and that grace will flow into your life. John here in verse 16 is reflecting on his own personal experience as a believer. That's why he says, verse 16, of this fullness, he says, we've all received. And then he tags on to that what he had received, grace For grace, notice what believers who've received Jesus are now afforded the opportunity to continuously receive. John says what it is, it's grace for grace. Other translations render that little statement there, grace upon grace or grace in exchange for more grace. What the language is trying to say is this, grace being replaced by the giving of more grace repeatedly. Let me say that again. It's saying that from Jesus, we can receive grace being replaced by the giving of more grace repeatedly, continuously. The picture there the Bible is trying to give to us is how Jesus' life is like the ocean with a continuous current that brings waves upon the shores of the people of humanity continually without ever ceasing. You know, we live near the beach. You go over the shore, you watch what happens there at the ocean shoreline. A wave comes in, right? It breaks on the shore and then that wave recedes back. And then what happens? Right behind it, here comes another wave crashing on the shore. And then it recedes back. Then here comes another wave and then another wave. And there's this unending cycle that never ceases where one wave replaces the next wave. And a wave comes, and as soon as that begins to recede, there's another wave already on the horizon coming right after. This is the language picturing the grace that's available to be received from Jesus, like those waves, one replacing another. One commentator said this, the Christian life is a constant reception of one evidence of God's grace replacing another. 
Boy, isn't it good news to know that because of who Jesus is and what he's done, there's a continual flow of the grace of God coming to us again and again, replacing prior grace that we just received. Here comes more grace once again. Here comes the next wave of grace. For example, this morning, maybe it's failures. And to know that every time you fail, there's a fresh measure of the grace of God available if you go to the Lord and you say, Jesus, I did it again. Lord, I acted like that again. I failed again. And you confess your sin and he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here comes, oh Lord, I... But here comes the next wave of grace again. He said, I'm not out of grace yet. You think I'm out of grace yet? Do you see how big this ocean of grace is? Or maybe it's weakness or weariness and we're so tired and exhausted in a situation. We're so, Lord, I just, I, I just, you gave me grace for this last week or this last, see, Lord, I just, I just don't know if I got another week in me. And he says, yeah, I got more grace for you. My grace will be sufficient. My power will be perfected in your weakness. There's fresh grace for tomorrow morning and next week. There's fresh grace for the next difficulty and the next challenge. Maybe it's grace to keep doing what's right. And sometimes that's hard. You're doing the right thing. You're trying to do the godly thing. And your flesh is warring against you and people are saying, that's dumb, that's stupid. And and it's hard to keep doing the right thing. But there's fresh grace for today. There's fresh grace for the next day. There'll be fresh waves of grace to keep every day doing the right thing and the godly thing because there's fresh grace that's always continually coming through the life of Jesus. Maybe you're in over your head dealing with something. Lord, I mean, I did this, but this next thing ahead of me, this is huge. I don't know how I'm going to do this, Lord. I've never been here before. And he says, listen, the same grace I gave you for that I've called you to this. I'm going to give you grace for this too. Whether it's a difficulty or some step to serve the Lord, whatever it is, James 4 says it wonderfully. It just simply says he gives more grace. He gives more grace. How wonderful. We're saved by grace. That's great. But don't ever think that's where the grace train stops. That's just the start. That's the opening of the the fountain, the spout. But we're sustained by grace. Truth of the matter is, look, you were saved by grace. The only reason you're still a Christian is because of the grace of God. The only reason you're still headed to eternity is the grace of God keeping you and helping you. And any good fruit that comes out of our life or ministry or effort, that as well, it only comes by the grace of God. Paul says as well in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Again, Paul, what's Paul doing? People are like, wow, Paul, you're a spiritual superhero. You write epistles, and you're one of the apostles, and you preach churches, and, and you plant churches, and you, well, you're just an incredible. And Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, you know what? Yeah, I labor hard. But he says, it's not even my hard labor that's producing anything. He says, yeah, I labor hard because it's the right thing to do. But he says, it's the grace of God that makes anything good come out of it. And Paul had that proper, humble, appropriate understanding of that very thing. Hebrews 4.16, one more before we move on, says this regarding Jesus, that we can approach boldly the throne of grace. Boy, that makes it feel good, doesn't it? The throne of grace could be a throne of anything. The throne of grace through Jesus that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Jesus, when you go to God's throne, it now is labeled grace. Because of Jesus. Whatever you need grace for, 
Go to Jesus, he'll supply it. So wanting to show this improved opportunity upon this new age, John then says in the 17th verse to us, for the law was given through Moses, but again he repeats, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he contrasts the greatness of the old dispensation where God through his servant Moses gave the law, and again the law of God was good. Remember, it served a preparatory purpose. The law of God did to point to people the holiness of God and to show people what God's will is and God's holy standard is. But the law of God also, in its very nature, made man see that he was a lawbreaker. Because as man got the law and he said, wow, that's God's standard, real quick he realized, I can't keep that. I keep failing. You know, isn't it funny people say stuff on occasion when they're trying to blow you off like, no, no I don't need to hear that stuff. Man, I just live by the Ten Commandments. You ask them, I say, do you know what the first one is? The reality is, look, that's the dumbest statement anyway. I live by the Ten No, you can't keep the Ten Commandments. That's the whole point. The law was given to show us we're lawbreakers and we need, guess what? Grace. That we need grace. That's why John says, yeah, the law came through Moses, but he says, but grace and truth. The perfect balance of grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God offered a righteous, loving solution because in Jesus, as he lived sinlessly, guess what he did? He upheld the truth of the righteous requirement of God's law. And then Jesus, because he died sacrificially as our substitute in our place as sinners, Jesus then showed the most incredible grace possible by taking the punishment upon himself. So in Jesus, mercy and truth meet at the cross. And again, the fullness, the perfect balance of grace and truth that's found in Jesus to provide for us the grace of God for salvation in our lives. John then concludes our text this morning, verse 18, by saying to us this, no one has seen God at any time. He says, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, the heart of the Father, the idea is there, he has declared him. Again, John's trying to drive home this point, if we have not got it yet, that Jesus came, he says here, to show us God. To reveal God to us, as to God's spiritual essence, you would say, or his eternal essence, God is invisible. He's an invisible God. He's not seen with a natural eye. No human being has ever looked upon God directly with the natural eye. Again, his awesome glory and holiness would be too much for that anyway. But yet, God being invisible displayed purposely who he was by revealing himself, it says here, in his Son being sent from heaven to declare to us who he is. John states, no one's seen God at any time. Again, God's invisible. The natural eye doesn't see it. First Timothy 6 says that God dwells in inapproachable light. But yet this God who is in that way wants humanity to know himself. So God reached out to mankind by revealing himself to us in the most perfect way that we might know him. It says here, the only begotten son, this is how God did it, declared to us who God was. You know, interesting, when you look at that word declared in the original context, it's the word we get our English word today, exegesis, which is what someone does when they accurately, hopefully, teach the Bible, which is they take what's there and they explain it and they unfold it to bring to greater comprehension. That's what exegesis is. Eisegesis is when you go to a text and you have an idea and you use the text to make it say what you want to say. 
exegesis is you read the text and you unpack what's in the text and explain what it means by unfolding it to give greater understanding. That's the term that John uses there when he talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus, the Son of God, he came and he exegeted God. He explained God more clearly. He unfolded to a greater understanding exactly all of who God was because Colossians 1 says he was the image of the invisible God. He made God visible, if you would. As a representative of the Trinity, he came and he revealed to humanity what God was like in all of his ways. That's what we're going to see Jesus say in John 14 when they come to him. They're going to say, Jesus, would you just show us the Father? That'll be sufficient. We'll be okay if you show us the Father. In other words, saying, show us God. That'll sustain us. And Jesus answers to that question, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me, he says, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, Jesus was saying, if you see me, you've seen God because God is with you. So the simple answer for us is this. If we want to know what God is like today, if you want to know what God is like, God is like Jesus because Jesus is God. And Jesus was the revelation of God here with us. You know, this passage teaches us Two things, certainly. First of all, that God wants to reveal himself. God wants to reveal himself to you more and more and more. You know what? Maybe you say, I'd like to get to know God a little better. You have no idea how much he's stoked about that. God wants to reveal himself to you. God is a God of revelation. He wants you to know him. Maybe you're a young person. You say, I don't get it. I kind of sit here, this, that, people reading the Bible. And maybe you're a younger Christian. I just, listen, God wants to reveal himself to you. In the same way your dad knows him and your mom knows him and other people, God wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to show you who he is personally, directly to you. And more, this text also reminds me of this reality that God is a God who is always in the process of reaching out to us. He's always reaching out to us. The question we have to answer really is when he's reaching out to us, are we responding to him? Or are we ignoring him and refusing him and rejecting him? I guarantee you in your life, all throughout your life, from the day that you've been born, and even if you're a Christian, you're still not a Christian yet this morning. One thing is true. This God who loves you and created you, he's always reaching out to you. He's always reaching out to you. Does it in lots of different ways, but he's always reaching out to you. The question is, God's been reaching out to you. You know he's reaching out to you. Are you responding to him? Or are you refusing and ignoring the times when he's reaching out to you? If God's reaching out to you, respond. Respond to him. Experience the goodness of what he has. Let's stand. Let's pray.